The Interchange is brought to you by STEM. STEM is the global leader in artificial intelligence-driven energy storage services. By combining advanced energy storage solutions with Athena, a world-class AI-powered analytics platform, STEM enables customers and partners to optimize energy use by automatically switching between battery power, on-site generation, and grid power for both behind-the-meter and in-front-of-the-meter projects. Find out more at STEM.com. We're also brought to you by our very own GTM Creative Strategies. Now, you might have heard one of the custom podcasts on this feed, and you might have thought, how do I get my company involved? Well, I've got an answer for you. It's GTM Creative Strategies. GTM Creative Strategies offers fully customized content programs for your brand. If you've got a story to tell, we are here to help you tell it. From concept to execution, we develop goals, build impactful campaigns, and help you deliver a compelling message to the energy industry's most engaged audience. See why campaigns from GTM Creative Strategies get results. Visit greentechmedia.com slash creative to learn more. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor with GTM. Welcome, everybody. This week, buy, sell, or hold. We're constantly going through waves of hype in different sectors. Flexible solar, vertical access wind, electric planes, vehicle to grid, the smart home, blockchain. Some are real, some are not. Some just need to mature. So what phase are we in now? In this episode, we're going to dig into different sectors and trends at various stages of the climate tech hype cycle and decide whether to buy, sell, or hold based on the current level of fanfare. And with me to do that is Shail Khan. He's my co-host. He's also managing director at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. Shail, hello. Hello, Stephen. Are you ready to make some trades? Always, especially when I don't actually have to put anything up to make the trade. (laughs) Just your credibility. Yeah, but that wasn't worth anything anyway, so I have nothing to lose. On Twitter the other day, you uh, posted a graph called the Climate Tech Hype Cycle. It's got 25 technologies on it the last time I checked. Um, What is this hype cycle, and what are the technologies that you're you're putting on here? Like, what's this all about? Well, I'm sure most folks are familiar with the hype cycle chart, but it was popularized by Gartner, the research firm. And it's basically, it's just a nice way to show it basically, um, the framework behind it implies that any given new technology or service that captures the attention of an industry or the, the public goes through a pretty similar series of phases in terms of hype. The first phase is when it's just starting to develop. It's, they call that the innovation trigger. Uh, hype builds very fast during that phase. At some point, it peaks, at which point you've hit what they call the peak of inflated expectations is when the technology, everybody's talking about it. And you're like, why is everybody talking about this thing all of a sudden? Then, of course, there is the inevitable crash that comes after the peak of inflated expectations when the technology turns out not to be the panacea you expected it to be, or it turns out it's going to take longer than you anticipated for it to develop. So then the hype crashes back down to earth, at which point you hit the long, painful, what they call trough of disillusionment, which is the time during which you're like, man, remember we used to talk about that technology? Oh boy, that was a bloodbath. But then after that happens, you start to slowly show the actual value that the technology was initially intended to display 
So you start building up again in what they call the slope of enlightenment. And finally, the technology actually becomes mature and is just a part of whatever ecosystem it is meant to be a part of, at which point you are in the plateau of productivity and the hype cycle is complete. So it's a tried and true way to look at the stage of the hype around a given technology. And I was just apropos of nothing as I was drinking coffee the other morning, I was thinking about a few different technologies in the quote unquote climate tech world that are in various stages of the hype cycle made me think, you know, I should just put all the technologies in the climate tech world somewhere on the hype cycle. So we started this podcast uh, many years back now. Where are we in our personal relationship here, our co-hosting relationship? Are we in the trough of disillusionment or in the slope of enlightenment? (laughs) Those are the only two options. You don't think we're at the peak of inflated expectations right now? (laughs) We've been around too long for that. I think it's been a long time. I think we've we've entered the plateau of productivity. All right, I'll take that. We're boring old mature podcasters now. <laughs> so you have a ton of technologies on this list. Everything from direct air capture to green hydrogen to alternative meat to virtual power plants to lithium ion batteries. And we are going to get into a bunch of them because both of us have uh, been covering this space for, what, I don't know, 15 years. And so we've seen um, this cycle play out for many different technologies. And so we decided to take a look at what is happening today and to ask whether based on current level of hype around a sector or a technology, would we buy, sell, or hold that technology or sector? Now, a shout out to the folks at 538 for giving us this idea. We are actually taking this idea from them. Um, Many of their politics reporters do a roundtable where occasionally they come up with different political scenarios, and then they buy, sell, or hold that scenario based on current knowledge. So, Uh, A shout out to them for giving us this idea. How is it going to work for energy technologies this time around, Shale? Right. So the basic idea is for any given technology, first we have to say like, this is subjective, obviously, but you know, there's nobody here to correct us. So the first question is, how hyped is this technology currently? Where is it on the hype cycle? But then the question that we will be asking ourselves is based on that current level of hype, would we buy, sell, or hold? Which basically means if we think it is underhyped, then we should buy. If we think it is overhyped, we should sell. And if we think it's hyped just right in a Goldilocks sense, then we should hold. Okay. So what should we start with first? Well, the thing that got me thinking about the hype cycles in the first place, because it is, I think, and certainly where I placed it on the hype cycle chart, among the one or two most hyped technologies currently is green hydrogen, Mm. which is a topic we have talked about once before in detail on the podcast, and I am positive we will talk about a bunch of times more in the relatively near future because it is currently extraordinarily hyped. First of all, do you agree with that? Like, are you seeing all the same green hydrogen obsession that I've been seeing over the past six months? Yes. And I think that the excitement is coming because we've seen a number of major planned projects. Um, So the European Union has put a major emphasis on hydrogen production as part of its stimulus package. And then we have a bunch of major industrial companies or oil majors that are investing in hydrogen paired with renewable energy projects. So green hydrogen, to be clear, is mass production of hydrogen from renewable energy resources. Um, So I think that the hype is definitely there. I would say the hype is there because we've seen some really major projects announced for future delivery. 
I wouldn't say it's projects. We've seen a few projects. There's, a, you know, been announcements of a couple of big projects, but I think it's more, the hype is more than just recent project announcements. It is, as you said, with the European Union, policy announcements as well and subsidy announcements. It is, the, you know, company announcements. Nikola, which we've talked about as well, um, has contributed to hydrogen hype. And also you've seen a run up in the stocks of a bunch of long existing low market cap public hydrogen oriented companies. It's just like it's happening all over the place. It's not just because there have been a bunch of projects announced. Yep. Okay. So green hydrogen, buy, sell, or hold. I, despite, despite green hydrogen being extraordinarily hyped, as I said before, um, I would hold this one. I actually think that the level of hype is, uh, is probably warranted in a way that is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the thing about hydrogen, especially in the current environment, is that it it it's kind of tantalizing to a bunch of different really important players who are, as a result, going to dedicate a ton of resources and a ton of investment to it over the next decade. So it's one of these technologies that is going to get a push in the way that I think batteries got a push at the beginning of last decade and the way that solar got a push at the beginning of the 2000s. You could feel, it feels very similar right now in the green hydrogen world to how it felt in those technologies a while back. It is, if you are in the business of um, producing or delivering natural gas, it's there's opportunities. You could potentially blend hydrogen into the gas infrastructure. You could potentially replace gas with hydrogen in a generator. There's a potential hydrogen solution for heavy-duty transportation. Hydrogen could be a solution for marine transportation decarbonization. There, It could be a solution for aviation decarbonization. It's also, if you're in the renewable energy business, a potential solution to your curtailment problem that you're going to face as you build more and more renewables um, and start to see oversaturation in certain grids. It potentially could be your solution to long duration energy storage. Like there's just all these different applications and whether or not it ends up being the winning technology for all those things, it's just got so much appeal to so many different players that uh, it's got really, really widespread support. And that in part leads to things like the European Union announcement, which you mentioned before, but just to put a finer point on it, the European Union is hoping to build 40 gigawatts of electrolyzers in the European Union by 2030, another 40 gigawatts that they want to support outside of the European Union. Uh, the entire market for electrolyzers last year was something like 120 megawatts or something like that. So orders of magnitude more. So in my mind, there's this like overarching debate that a lot of folks like to have that's pretty theoretical about like, is hydrogen the right energy carrier for various applications? May or may not be. I don't want to engage in that debate at the moment. It, it seems almost a bit irrelevant at this point because there is going to be so much investment placed in hydrogen for the next decade. So I am a hold. What about you? I'm going to be so interested to see how we match up here because we were thinking about this very similarly, and I also broke it down by sector. So yes, I am a hold as well, and that's my overall position, but I vary based on end-use application. It totally depends on what you use it for. So I am a sell when it comes to passenger vehicles. I think the infrastructure, the fueling infrastructure is too complicated and too expensive, and electric vehicles will win out in, in the passenger vehicle space. If you think about niche applications like forklifts, 
uh, fuel cells are already cost competitive, and I, I'll probably make that a, a buy. Um, I think that the economics are clearly already there. If we think about use of hydrogen in industrial applications, because you might otherwise curtail renewable electricity, clearly there are you know uses for hydrogen in like electronics or in uh, ammonia production and fertilizer production like there are a lot of ways that you can use hydrogen and i can see that being a valuable product from excess renewable electricity now if we're talking about using renewables to generate a lot of hydrogen and then store it and then re-electrify it in fuel cells i'm a hold and I think that the cost structure is just not there. In fact, uh, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory just put out a study showing that uh, seasonal storage from hydrogen is probably not going to be cost competitive until the middle of the century in 2050. So I'm probably a hold there. But with that said, I think we're going to have so much renewable electricity um, you know, past 2030 that it may end up becoming attractive. So that's how I was breaking it down. Yeah, I broadly agree with what you're saying there. I mean, I think the other dynamic, we'll, we'll have more episodes to talk about hydrogen, but the other dynamic that's going to be interesting is this definition of quote unquote green hydrogen, which as you described before is using electrolysis to, um, powered by renewable energy to convert water into hydrogen, um, you know, relies upon you using renewable energy. Now, the equation for the economics of hydrogen production via electrolysis is tied in part to the cost of electricity and part to the utilization rate of the electrolyzer. So you're going to have this complicated problem wherein, let's just say you're trying to use excess wind power. And if you just want to use the excess wind power, especially your utilization rate of the electrolyzer is going to be nowhere near hundred percent. So it's going to be much more expensive on a fully loaded basis to produce that hydrogen. On the other hand, you'll be able to produce much cheaper hydrogen using a blend of that wind power that is curtailed and then just power off of the grid. And so I don't think I don't know that we exactly have a color definition yet for the type of hydrogen that I think we're going to start to see first because I think green hydrogen will at least for a while be harder to attain, more expensive than some green, some purple, whatever you want to call it, just like, you know, you know, partial green hydrogen produced by uh, by electricity off of the grid. Anyway, this is all getting further than we need to get down the road. It sounds like we're both agreed that like hype around green hydrogen is real, but also probably because this is a market that isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Next up, micromobility. I think there was some disagreement on the level of hype around micromobility. And that may be because you live in the Bay Area, you're in the venture capital world. So define what you see as the hype or previous hype around micromobility. We're talking about scooters, bike sharing, whatever one-wheel electric device you Silicon Valley types are riding around on these days. Um, what was going on last into last year around micromobility in terms of hype? I mean, from a pure hype perspective, if you look at the venture capital world, micromobility was for a you know brief shining period of time extremely hyped, right? Like hundreds of millions of dollars flowed into a bunch of companies almost overnight. I think, and I should have looked this up, but I think that Bird or Lime, one of the major scooter sharing companies, was the fastest company to a billion dollar valuation that we've ever seen. They raised you know 
literally hundreds of millions of dollars along with a bunch of other competitors that followed them. Um, so almost overnight, micromobility gained a ton of hype. But then my perception is that that hype has was already evaporating to some extent pre-COVID and then COVID has only accelerated that. So I think if we're thinking about the hype cycle, um, micromobility had a very fast journey through the peak of inflated expectations and the crash and now sits in the trough of disillusionment. So are you a buy, sell, or hold? Well, I think given that the hype has evaporated and that a lot of folks seem to be pretty down on micromobility now, um, I would buy. Because I actually think many of the underlying reasons why people were excited about using scooters and e-bikes in particular, which are actually gaining more steam than scooters at the moment, I think. Um, the reason people were excited about that are still true. And perhaps in some cases, actually even stronger in a COVID-driven world where you it's, it's hard to take public transportation and maintain social distancing, but it's not hard to ride an e-bike and maintain social distancing. So that in some ways is actually a positive for micromobility, despite the fact that we are, we are generally traveling less. We are once again in alignment. I am a buy based on where we are in the cycle. So just technologically speaking, batteries that are so fundamental to some of these options are so cheap and can be put on everything. Uh, electrification of personal transport is not going to go away. And we'll probably see other types of transport emerge just because batteries are so inexpensive. As you said, we live in a world in which people are taking less public transportation. They're looking for new ways to get around. And assuming they're still living in a city, then these options are attractive. And cities are simultaneously reconsidering how people get around and in, in streets. Uh, we could potentially see streets opened up to pedestrians long term. That pushes out cars. That keeps in some of these other mobility options. And I could see that being very good for, you know, some of these these transportation options, particularly bicycles and scooters. The big hesitation for me is kind of this macro exodus we're seeing out of urban areas, right? Like the real estate market is going gangbusters right now. And that's because people who live in cities who have enough money to potentially finance another house are just going out and buying houses in rural areas. And we are absolutely igniting our instincts for suburban or rural living in this country. And so that means more people will probably buy cars if they don't have one already. They might buy more than one car if they have a bigger family. Uh, they'll be driving around more. And so one wonders how that pushes some of these offerings out around the margins. Even for people who are still living in cities, there's a lot more interest in buying cars because people don't want to take public transportation. So I see that being a major headwind. All, all told, I'm still a buy. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, I don't know what to make of this exodus from cities, but my suspicion is that real though it may be for a small subset of the population, there's going to be the vast majority of populations in urban centers who either still want to live in those urban centers and are, you know, if anything, making a temporary move outside just during during the COVID land. Um, but more importantly, a much larger group of people who just can't, right? Their jobs are essential or they're inherently in person and they can't work remotely. And so even if we see some degree of an exodus from cities, I don't think the cities collapse. And as long as people need to make relatively short trips, you know, say three miles or less, then that's the that's the place that the micromobility providers are going after. 
So the next one is residential storage, um, either batteries on their own or more likely batteries paired with solar um, for backup or potentially some kind of grid service. And we have been talking about batteries on this show and at Green Tech Media for years and years and years, distributed batteries. Um, where do you think we are in the hype cycle when it comes to batteries? For residential yeah, applications yeah, specifically. Yeah. I actually find this one tough to decide. So I'm, I would love to get your take. So how hyped do you think residential batteries are right now? Much less hyped than they were in 2014 or 2015. I mean, I can remember writing stories about the next big wave of batteries. I mean, I, I played this up myself because everyone was talking about how important batteries were going to be for the solar business. I think the hype has moderated considerably. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. I was just looking for, I remember some quote, I believe from Lyndon Rive, who is the CEO of SolarCity, which was the largest solar installer at the time, like five years ago, saying something like five years from now, every residential solar installation will contain a battery. Do you remember something like that? Yes, I think it, I wrote that story, or at least I wrote about the quote. I do remember him saying that, absolutely. And we heard other people making similar claims. Right. So I do, I agree with you. I think relative to that level of excitement five years ago or whatever it was, I think uh, the excitement and hype has cooled on residential batteries. So I guess they're a bit down, but not like in the, you know, there's no despair in the market. I just think they're just not getting as much attention. Yeah. So given where we are in this strange cycle, I don't really know how to define the cycle for batteries, but I think that the excitement has, has died down a bit and expectations have moderated. I'm a buy on this one. Activity is certainly maturing. Leading installers are seeing a third or more of new solar systems paired with batteries. That's huge. Uh, if you'll remember, we had Barry Cinnamon on the show. He's a veteran solar installer. And he was really positive about the, about the demand for batteries. And he really thinks about these issues in terms of kitchen table decision making. And he understands the psychology of solar buyers. And he was pretty bullish on batteries. I am not a buy for grid services, though. I mean, it's clear that it's really backup that's important for a lot of people, or maybe as a hedge against future changes to like solar tariffs. But in general, I am a buy. Unfortunately, we agree again. Um, I also am a buy on residential batteries. I've said this before, but it is impressive how fast that market has been growing, given that there is still no economic case for most customers to install a battery at home. It's different from solar. Solar was about, the reason the market took off was because you know, companies were able to offer savings on day one. That is not the case with batteries. And so the fact that we are seeing thousands and tens of thousands of these installations take place is indicative of the fact that there is this additional value, as you said, out of resiliency, primarily that is not super price sensitive for some portion of the population. Now add in the future state where batteries do become cheaper, rates become more dynamic, and the grid services begin to materialize and the economics get better and better for people. So you can assume a larger portion of the population will adopt. You've also got the folks like, I mean, you can just watch what's happened with Generac, right? Generac is by far the largest provider of home backup 
power, historically fossil-based generation. They own like 70% of that market. They are making a big push in the residential battery space. They acquired a company, Pika Energy. Um, they've been rolling out new products and they talk about it a lot, even on earnings calls and things like that. I mean, this is the, the home backup market is meaningful already. It's only going to get more meaningful as we have increasing prevalence and magnitude of storms and outages. Uh, and I think batteries are going to end up swamping that market. So I am also a buy. If you want a deeper dive into what is happening in distributed batteries, go back to last week's episode and listen to my conversation with Julian Spector. Well, coming up, let's see if we can disagree a little bit. But first... The Interchange is brought to you by STEM. STEM is the world's largest network of energy storage systems with over 790 megawatt hours deployed around the globe in more than 1,000 sites. By combining advanced energy storage solutions with Athena, an AI-powered analytics platform, STEM enables customers and partners to optimize energy use by automatically switching between battery power, on-site generation, and grid power for both behind-the-meter and in-front-of-the-meter projects. STEM supports more than 360 customers around the world to benefit from clean, adaptive energy infrastructure and achieve a wide variety of goals, including expense reduction, resilience, sustainability, environmental responsibility, and corporate innovation. STEM also offers full support for solar partners interested in adding storage to standalone community or commercial solar projects for 160 partners to date. To learn more about STEM and specifically their front of meter solution, join us on a GTM hosted webinar on Tuesday, September 8th, and go sign up at stem.com. We're also brought to you by our very own GTM Creative Strategies. You've got a story to tell, and we are here to help you tell it. GTM Creative Strategies leverages unmatched editorial credibility, top creative minds, and seasoned analysts to drive unparalleled brand awareness that puts you ahead of your competitors. Our programs range from lead generation that drives sales, customized content like white papers, and content that keeps people educated and informed like podcasts, so you can tell your story directly to thousands of listeners. Want to get started working closely with a talented and creative team to build comprehensive marketing programs and customized content programs, all backed by the highly credible GTM? Visit greentechmedia.com slash creative to learn more. All right. You put a call out on Twitter to people asking them what is the most hyped climate tech sector right now. And almost universally, the two that came back were green hydrogen, which we've already talked about. And the second most common was direct air capture. So for those who are not aware, direct air capture is it's the simplest solution to uh, decarbonization in theory, which is literally just using a machine to suck CO2 out of the air. Um, it's as distinct from the historical type of carbon capture that people think of in that it is not point source. So you're not like sticking something on top of a smokestack of a power plant and sucking the CO2 out as it is produced. You are literally um, sucking it out of thin air anywhere, not attached to a source of emissions. Yeah, there are two basic types of direct air capture. One is passing the air through a chemical solution to remove CO2. And the other is that actually uses filters that chemically bind with the CO2. So this is different than the kind of carbon capture that you would see on power plants, as you said, Shale. And boy, oh boy, have we heard a lot about direct air capture. Do you want to summarize what you see as the uh, level of interest that has surged 
Yeah, I don't think it's quite up at the level of green hydrogen, but I do feel like over the past year, there has been a lot more talk about direct air capture than there had been before. I mean, the first projects are really coming online now, so maybe it's partially due to that. There have also been all these big corporates that have made commitments toward carbon removal, and so when companies like Stripe made their first purchases of credits from their carbon removal program, they included direct air capture within that, so you're seeing the first kind of like contracts signed, but I mean, it's definitely... It's certainly hyped right now relative to the actual activity in this space. So given that it's somewhat inflated expectations at the moment, are you a buy, sell, or hold? I'm a sell. I I don't know what the actual hype is like in venture capital circles in terms of dollar deployments or just general chatter, but I can speak for the press. And when we started to see... And commercial announcements of direct air capture systems over the last five years, there was a lot of coverage that was implying that this is the end-all solution to solving climate change. And, you know, we all know what gets clicks, and people frame this as like a silver bullet approach to um, decarbonization, and even when they know it's not. And so I feel like there was a lot of hype in the press about the potential of uh, CO2 direct air capture. Now, I, I still believe that it's an important technology, but just one solution among many decarbonization approaches. And it certainly doesn't change what we need to do over you know the next 10 years, which is just electrify, build lots of renewable energy and a lot of batteries and electrified transportation. Um, I think that's where we, we're going to get the most bang for the buck over the next decade. So Given the hype, uh, given its potential, I'm a sell right now. All right. In the interest of not agreeing with each other on everything, I will. I will. Oh, are you I actually? Was, sell? I'm, were, I was oscillating. <laughs> I haven't made my decisions before this conversation, so I was. Oh wow! You're actually making your decisions in real time. Yeah, man. These are my unfiltered opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, I was. I, I was thinking about a sell, but I will be a hold. Um, the case for it is probably driven by two things. One is it's going to garner a bunch of support. Right now, the problem is direct air capture is a very expensive way to mitigate emissions. So you know, if you wanted your price of carbon to be $50 a ton, that is not nearly enough for direct air capture, hundreds of dollars a ton at the moment. So it's tough economically. So it relies on two things. One, it getting some support from incentives from buyers like Stripe who are not particularly price sensitive. I think we will see some of that probably enough for it to, you know, start to emerge and for projects to get built. The second is, um, you know, there's this emerging ecosystem of carbon to value companies, which I think we should also talk about some other time, which is utilizing uh, CO2 to produce something else or in some other application that has economic value. So that can range from companies using CO2 in the production of cement and concrete to production of chemicals, to production of fuels, um, to industrial feedstocks. There's a bunch of different potential applications. And the more that we create additional demand for CO2, the more, more there will be a, a pull to produce more CO2, which is actually a pretty small market as it stands today, used in things like carbonation for soda. Um, now, the problem there is that there may be cheaper ways to produce CO2 than just direct air capture. But nonetheless, create a bigger market for CO2, 
there will be more demand for it, which will justify um, some direct air capture. I would really have a hard time being a buy on this one, but I will, I'll stick my hat on hold. It's the best I can offer. Yeah, the only way that I can uh, become more bullish on this is if we get a price for carbon in the U.S. or in other major markets. I mean, with, with the, the utilization piece in particular doesn't really make any sense unless you have a pretty high cost of, of carbon. Um, well, it depends. I mean, there are some of these applications where you don't need a price on carbon. It can just um, be cost competitive. But again, you can use any CO2 to do that. And direct air capture is not going to be the cheapest way to get CO2. Yeah. For me, it's one solution of many. We got to, you know, capture methane, kill coal plants, electrify buildings and transportation, and plant more trees. <laughs> Those are the things we need to do in the next decade. Okay, Shale, it's our favorite technology, blockchain. Mm. I think we had multiple episodes on blockchain and people got all up in arms about it. We we drove the hype cycle when it came to energy blockchain. <laughs> we did. And it's one of my greatest regrets. You regret it? I regret participating in the hype cycle. <laughs> okay. Well, everybody, I think at this point knows what the blockchain is just because it was so ubiquitous a couple of years ago, but it is a secure distributed ledger that can be used to track transactions. And it is the foundation of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, but it was touted as the solution for tracking supply chains or uh, any other sensitive information, the trading of any other sensitive information. And a bunch of startups got into the space to try to use blockchain to create peer-to-peer -peer energy sales to improve transactions on the smart grid, to improve wholesale market transactions. And a lot of people, myself included, thought that like the, the foundational technology was really interesting, but that the applications were just not there. And that there were a lot of other ways, um, proven ways to you know make energy transactions that don't require blockchain at all. So we are well past the hype cycle on blockchain. I don't know where you think we are in the cycle itself, Shia. I'd be curious to to get your opinion on that. Um, oh, I think we're deep in the trough of disillusionment mm -hmm. for blo blockchain and energy yeah. specifically is what we're talking right. about. No, for and blockchain generally. I mean, yeah, right. Too. It probably applies broadly to blockchain, but you know, that's outside my domain of expertise. So blockchain and energy, I, we're definitely uh, at the, the bottom or near the bottom of the hype cycle. So given where we are, are you a buy, sell, or hold? I'm a sell. Mm. I just have, I'm yet to find an application of blockchain and energy that feels to me like it is necessary as, or even preferential to um, any array of different uh, alternatives, including just like basic databases. There are a few that are sort of interesting, like tracking renewable energy credits to make sure there's no double counting and stuff like that. I'm not saying there won't be any application of blockchain used at all, but you know, as it pertains to a hype cycle, I just don't, I, I wish this is why you and I were going back and forth about which topics we should talk about here. And I was opposed to talking about blockchain because, and this is a point that I will say, uh, Jesse Morris, who works at the Energy Web Foundation, which works on blockchain has made himself as well, um, is that blockchain is not a sector like most of these other things are. It's a tool. 
And that tool can be used to do things that are interesting, but the, it, the, what we'd want to talk about in this context would be the thing that is interesting, not the fact that they use blockchain to do it. Because we're not going to talk about the other database technology that they're going to use to do something, right? So I just on uh, principle have to sell on blockchain. Well, here's something that we differ on. I'm a hold bordering on a buy. Um, now, I reached out to the most bullish person that I know about the energy blockchain. Can you can you guess who that is? Scott Clavenna. <laughs> That's right. Scott Clavenna is the co-founder of Green Tech Media, and uh, he's the former chairman of Woodmac. Uh, power and renewables. He he now lives in Maine and is just boating around thinking about blockchain, I guess. But I, I asked him. Yeah, blockchain has driven him out of the state of Massachusetts <laughs> to a cabin in the woods in Maine. It has nothing to do with the pandemic. So I asked I asked him, I said, like, well, what do, what do you think about this? And he said, I totally buy the concept still. It's definitely real, but there's just no good companies out there to invest in. So like the use cases are there, but it's impossible to build a startup around it because the implementation is so slow. Um, and so he thinks that the Energy Web Foundation is doing really great work on proving the concept. But, you know, a lot of the startups were counting on Ethereum, which is the platform, one of the most popular blockchain platforms. And Ethereum is like a year or two behind the evolution of its of its product. So I think he, he says that energy blockchain 1.0 is a sell, but he's still bullish on the concept going forward. So I'm just going to go with whatever Scott says, which seems to be a hold. All right. I have one more. Um, and it is a bit meta. What about climate tech itself? Um, the the concept of climate tech, which you know, I would argue is not yet at the peak of inflated expectations, but has gained a fair amount of hype. We talked about this, you know, in the context of venture capital with Abiokel um, a few weeks ago. It's uh, it's clearly gained prominence amongst investors, and there's a sort of wider world of folks, particularly around the tech community, who I think have uh, latched on to the idea of climate tech. So I would say it is hyped at the moment, if not you know, green hydrogen level hyped. Um, so would you buy, sell, or hold on climate tech? I just want to note here that Shale called an audible and totally changed it on us. We had virtual power plants on the list. So for those of you who are eager to get our opinions about virtual power plants, which was a suggestion on Twitter, we're now going to climate tech, which is something that has come up on this show. You know, quite frankly, you were the first person to bring up climate tech to me on this show with Abe Yakel uh, about a year ago. So I feel like you're the one driving the the cycle right now. I'm creating the hype. That may yeah. well be true. I'm certainly a part of it. This this could be a self fulfilling prophecy. Should I say that I'm a buy on it and then talk about it incessantly for the next year? <laughs> like I'll like I'll like pump the stock of climate tech. Well, I'm a buy. I'm a buy on clean tech still too. I mean, uh, I think clean tech has shown its resiliency as a sector. Um, we are clearly well past the trough of disillusionment in clean tech and we are well into the slope of enlightenment um i feel like maybe we're we've got some inflated expectations about climate tech because it's not clearly defined but um we've certainly learned a, a lot of lessons from the earlier stages of investment so i am definitely a buy i think i'm a buy too I, you know I think that, I don't know, I, I 
don't want to be jaded after so many years um, in this sector and having seen a true hype cycle, right? Clean tech, the concept went through all stages of the hype cycle. And so what, you know, what arguably is happening right now is that we've, we went through the entire hype cycle and it started all over again, and now it's climate tech. Um, so the bet, the buy here is a, an indication that we don't think it's going to go through the same hype cycle in the same way again. We're not going to see a boom followed by a crash. And I think I believe that. So I'll, I'll leave it on an optimistic note. So where are we in the, the podcasting hype cycle? Oh, you don't want me to answer that. You've dedicated your entire life to the podcasting sector. I'm a buy, Stephen, for you. I'm a buy on, on your professional future. Yeah, 15 years of my life in podcasting. You better be a buy. <laughs> All right. Well, Shale Khan is my co-host. That's going to do it for this episode. I'm a buy on you, Shale. I appreciate it, Stephen. I am a buy on you as well. Thanks for joining us. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Sean Marquand mixed the show, and he also developed the tag for the show. So thanks to both of them. You can find us anywhere you uh, interact with people on social media, most likely Twitter. Find us on Twitter. Give us some ideas for the show. Tell us what you would buy, sell, and hold. Shale's got his Climate Tech Hype Cycle chart up there, which we will link to. So uh, you can you can see where he would slot in all the other technologies and sectors that we didn't get to in this episode. And we'll be back with you next week, as always. Thanks for listening. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media.